This is the Constructionist Podcast, where we take ancient stories, the person of Jesus, current events and topics, and help you construct a new Christian worldview that's relevant and loving to those around you. I'm your host, Kevin Bates. I'm a semiotician and community builder looking at the signs of the times to build a better future together. You are tuned into the Constructionist Podcast, and tonight we are continuing our series through the book of Mark. We encourage a worldview here at the Constructionists that are built on the principles of Christ, and we are examining the life of Christ through a clear and honest lens. So by doing so, we hope to offer insights and perspectives that will help you in your journey towards a greater understanding of love and compassion for yourself and others. Now, we want to assure you that in tonight's episode, we're not fabricating anything with the scriptures as many have done. So the information or the ideas that we provide, we've either researched them, we'll give reference to them, or when we're just guessing, we're gonna tell you we're guessing. But our goal is to provide an honest and authentic perspective of our examination. So we call this our thinking space and we are presenting ideas and thoughts. And tonight we're making our best attempt to explain very practical theologies to live by. So if you enjoy the Constructionist podcast and wanna support us financially, please follow the link in the chat or the show notes on the social media platform you're listening to and visit our Give page. You can support us also through our Patreon page at The Constructionists. So your support will enable us to continue producing high quality content like you're listening tonight. But even more importantly, we wanna hear from you. We wanna engage with you. We believe that through our interactions and discussions with listeners like you, we can continue to learn and grow together and develop what we call a communal hermeneutic. So we value your, your feedback, We value your questions and your ideas and are excited to build a community around a shared exploration of perspectives. So please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Let us know what you think and either we're gonna answer them tonight or we will answer them through the week whenever you put it on the social media platform, your questions, we will answer them. So tonight, thank you, Sherea and Jake for joining us. We are continuing through the book of Mark, the life of Christ, a semiotic perspective, through the details of the life of Christ in the book of Mark, starting in Mark chapter 14. So we're going to hit it and go right into Mark 14. Jake, why don't you read at least the first part of Mark 14 for us? Definitely. Mark 14. It was two days before Passover and the festival of the unleavened bread. The chief priests and legal experts, through cunning tricks, were searching for a way to arrest Jesus and kill him. But they agreed that it shouldn't happen during the festival. Otherwise, there would be an uproar among the people. Jesus was at Bethany, visiting the house of Simon, who had a skin disease. During dinner, a woman came in with a vase made of alabaster, containing a very expensive perfume of pure nard. She broke open the vase and poured the perfume on his head. Some grew angry. They said to each other, why waste a perfume? The perfume could have been sold for almost a year's pay and the money given to the poor, and they scolded her. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you make trouble for her? She has done a good thing for me. You always have the poor with you. Whenever you want, you can do something good for them, but you all won't always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body ahead of time for burial. I tell you the truth that whenever, wherever in the whole world, the good news is announced, what she, what she's done will be told in memory of her. Well, let's stop there because I find that just a a natural break in Mark 14. So why don't we unpack this? It seems to me in a progressive view that this is a contradictory to what Jesus has promoted all along to clothe the naked, feed the hungry, house the poor, and dump expensive perfume all over my head, all over my body, 
all over just because it's expensive and good. So, so tell me, just unpack this for me because it kind of speaks something different and counter to the narrative. Shreya, why don't you start us out? What do you think of this? Yeah, I preached on this the last time I preached, so I've got some thoughts. Yeah. Um, so throughout the book of Mark, um, we've seen people, in particular the disciples, trying to figure out who Jesus is and what he's doing. Mm -hmm. um, and even when they land on the correct answer of you're the Messiah, they still have all of these assumptions about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah that even with the right answer, they still get it wrong because yeah. they want Jesus to be this conquering hero. Um, and in the book of Mark, this woman who um, pours perfume on Jesus' head, as he says, prepares him for burial, um, she's the very first person in this gospel to understand what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah that involves um, death and surrender and not what victory is supposed to look like. So to interject before you continue, so she's preparing Jesus, obviously, for the burial or a metaphor of mm -hmm. the burial in this act. <clears throat> but the victory is in the resurrection in the Christian narrative. So right. do you think, perceive in this story that that the woman understood that Jesus would resurrect as well? Um, I don't know about that. Um, yeah. we'll get there, we'll get there when we get to chapter 16, but the original ending of Mark ends with a big question mark. So, right, right. Yeah. I, I kind of think, think it's unlikely. I think it is too. I think that she pretty much thought that she was losing the king. Yeah, this this is it. Yeah, this is it. And, and she's thinking, well, I'm going to do the very best that I can with what I know. And in my tradition, we adorn the body of mm -hmm. the dead or the dying with a uh, perfume. And so this perfume is a symbol, I guess, of her understanding or her knowledge or her, her revealed knowledge of what she thought Jesus, who Jesus was. <clears throat> Yes. <laughs> Do you have any more thoughts on that, Jay? I, I, it would, I would struggle to say that she thought that Jesus would be resurrected with such an emotional outpour. Mm. Literal. Um, and I don't know if Jesus even knew that he was going to be resurrected as well. Right. Right. I think throughout mm -hmm. all of Mark, Good point. Uh, and really only in John do we see Jesus really know that the end will, will happen, uh, that he'll be resurrected. Um, yeah. and so did Jesus, did Jesus know, or did Jesus have faith that he was going to, I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, I don't think anyone is sure. And so to, to put such assuredness on the resurrection, especially Jesus, that his take on it, I think misses the, the humanist perspective of what Jesus was. Um, <clears throat> some interesting things, like, as I remember when Shreya preached and looking up, like, what nard costs today, it's still super expensive. Hmm. So, like, it's still a, it still is out of reach for most people. And who is this lady that had a year's worth of pay in one small vial? Yeah. Um, in other gospels, I don't believe that Mark, yeah, Mark does not talk about the, the three magicians, <laughs> so the Magi. And so I might be wrong. Am I wrong? I think Matthew is the only one that does. And so even those gifts foreshadow a death. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this is the first time that we see in, in Mark of foreshadowing of death in the death ritual of burial. Um, you can make claim like Jesus is talking about the temple 
earlier that that was kind of a foreshadow right. of death. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really, this is this is the most poignant one that we have so far. Uh, mm. And I think also you have to be careful saying that Jesus was the Messiah to them. Mm. It was it he was a Messiah, a Messiah. Yep. And so. Right. But was was he was Jesus the Messiah to her? I think he was her Messiah, but to say the Messiah, I think was it's is quick at this point, right? Because there's lots of people claiming, yeah, and so like, like this Jesus status in the thirteenth chapter. Mm-hmm. We talk about there'll be many that claim to be Messiah, right? And mm-hmm. In the in the Judean uh, the uh, in the in the Jewish uprising that's going to happen here very soon in Israel uh, after Jesus' death, there's lots of messiahs that are claimed, and throughout all the Roman occupation, there were lots of messiahs that were claimed, and this is the right. first one that really stuck. I find it interesting that this this next little section, if I could read this next little section, Mark 14, 10 and 11, um, if you want to throw that up there, Judas Iscariot, one of the 12, went to the chief priests to give Jesus up to them. When they heard it, they were delighted and promised to give him money. So he started looking for an opportunity to turn him in. So right at the on the heels of of this woman dumping expensive perfume on Jesus now we have money and and trading Jesus in basically for money so whenever i see that in scripture uh anything that has to do with money there's a greater picture for me it's like a bigger metaphor so i see this woman is in the good she's doing good which actually in Kalos would be beautiful so she did a beautiful thing for me with an expensive money and now we have the trader going to do a horrible evil thing for me with and trade me for money so i mean any like in this section, any concluding thoughts on that? Cause I see a relationship there. I just don't know what to quite do. Well, with I mean, that if you take that metaphor to the next, the next stage of the, the Iscariot narrative, uh, he hangs himself in a field and his money spills out underneath him and no one would collect it because it was blood money. Mm-hmm. Mm. And so, uh, I mean, that's the spilling of, of extravagance. So we have the spilling of extravagance and understanding the Messiah and the spirit it's the spilling of extravagance in understanding the anti-Messiah. Yeah. I mean, some people may claim that, that Judas was the one that knew who Jesus was the most and was trying mm-hmm. to expedite the process. Well, I mean, possibly i i that that seems too far of a claim for me because judas was a human being and so i think that our human beingness has the oh propensity the the uh we have the condition i guess deep inside of us to sell each other out um we want to claim that we never would but if our life depended on it. So maybe maybe Judas felt threatened. Um, did he feel threatened that Jesus was the Messiah and therefore they were all going to get in trouble um, and they were all going to be thrown under the bus with Jesus? Or did he just feel threatened and, and um, maybe wanted to get away from the threat, you know, that Jesus really, you know, was just this quack of a speaker um miracle worker type of person and he wanted to get away from the situation who knows but uh yeah i i don't know i I have a hard time believing that judas would know who jesus was and then sell him out i think that's that's part of the 
the gospel of Judas, which isn't really an accepted one, but right, uh, right. that there was a, there's a divine understanding of who Jesus was. And so mm. that's why there was an expedition. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I, it's been a long time since I read it, so I'm not hundred percent sure. I, I mean, I kind of think just looking, um, at the political implications of what Jesus is doing. It's, mm. you know, if, if Judas is smart and politically minded, I'm sure he can see what's going to happen if Jesus continues. Um, so maybe it's not this divinely, you know, understanding the mysteries of who Jesus is, but it's mm. just an awareness of the political climate that they're in. Yeah. Well, I think that, that that in and of itself wraps up that section. I don't know if there's too much more that we could, I mean, of course, we could probably spend a lot of time um, explicating and parsing words and such, uh, but th those are the big pictures, I think, that we see. And to really realize that, once again, a woman is at center stage of this story so that that again brings up this question or this this motif of this narrative that that jesus is continually putting women at the center of the story whether it be a marginalized person bringing them into community or this woman um, of course, the popes and such probably, when they when they um, demonized women in scripture, uh, this would be one of the women that were probably a prostitute, and they really demeaned who uh, she was. Um, yet, however, she got the money in order to purchase uh, the nard. However, that was acquired in whatever situation. Um, I think that I think that it's important to note that uh, a woman is at the center of this uh, center of this story. Any more thoughts on that? Nothing I'm, new. That's consistent, right? And yeah, the, the women are the bearers of the gospel throughout. Hundred percent. Every. Yeah every gospel or every letter that was written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, especially mm -hmm. in the ones that have Jesus' resurrection. And so Mark doesn't end in resurrection, but the other ones do. And mm. so there is a, there's a knowingness of the female character in, in every, in every gospel. Well, it's the living out of the kingdom being genderless again, that there's no, male, female, Jew, Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised in the kingdom. So this is, once again, the disciples are trying or attempting to live in kingdom. And that's what they're not getting. They're not getting the big picture of kingdom or kingdom. And so... So they don't necessarily understand all that's going on. So Jesus is the one leading this, bringing this woman into honor with his words that she's done a beautiful thing. And he says that almost in a way that it's like, what are you doing? Right? So it's like a snide, you know, slap in their, in their face when they question, you know, like this, mm -hmm. this gold and this is, you know, good money and, and then Jesus says it in a way that, you know, slaps them in the face a little bit. Which I'm trying to recall, did, I don't think Jesus ever gave money to the poor throughout all of any gospel. He fed. I don't think so, no. Nothing so, comes to like, mind. It's like, why, why at this point are they saying, well, he could have gave it to the poor? Well, probably because of like the 
like everything else that was happening around, you know, it just, it made sense. Like it does make sense. You know, you're going to just dump a bunch of perfume on Jesus. That doesn't make any sense, but it's the, it's the bigger metaphor that they're missing. They, they were living in very practical law. Oh, this is the new law. We're supposed to feed the poor. And by doing this, you know, we get to heaven you know, what place in heaven do you get to sit? You know, and they have these like dumb little conversations that have to do with just more legalism, more rule keeping, more if I do more than I get more type of mentality. And Jesus then points it towards more of a more of a Messiah heavenly yeah. type concept here. So this was a message for the early church. So what was Jesus trying to or what Jesus, what was the writer of Mark trying to tell the early church. I think Mark is trying to tell the early church that what you do for the least of these you do for Christ. And because Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, that's why we do these things. And so we're to love like this woman loved him. We are to love our neighbors the same. And then if you think about the extravagance of it all, I, mm -hmm. there's, there's two people in scripture that are in, in, the, in the New Testament, Mark, that lived extravagantly or had an outpouring extravagantly. Uh, John the Baptist and this lady who poured out perfume. Mm -hmm. And so one was to make way for the coming and mm -hmm. perhaps this is signal that is to make way for the going. Mm. I'm just looking something up here really quick. It's a good connection, you... Jake. Thanks. Yeah. I like that one too. Say, say it one more time <laughs> for our listeners. So extravagantly, if we look at, if we look at the idea of extravagance, and most people, I guess, most like traditional t like teaching is that John the Baptist was a lived almost uh, homeless, just out there in the middle of nowhere. Right. right. Kind of a desert teacher that had just kind of kind of a little crazy, wearing camel skins and eating bugs. But if you, if you put that in context and culture, John was actually living very extravagantly. That camel hair was like the cloaks of, of kings and locusts and honey were a, were a seasonal delicacy. So like he had the money to buy seasonal all the, all the time. Right. Um, and in the extravagance of it all, John John's purpose was to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. Right. And that's in a piece of extravagance that the kingdom is extravagant and the kingdom is coming. And you have you have this lady unnamed who is making way for the even more so for the kingdom that that Jesus would soon die so to make way for the going of Christ. Got it. That she's now pouring out extravagance. Mm. That is nice. So I'm looking up Lydia, the mm -hmm. seller of purple cloth. Yeah. Now, when I, when I think about like just the seller of cloth, I go, well, how much money, you know, could she have had? And what did she do with it? Um, but purple cloth, the dyes that they used in purple cloth were expensive. And so purple was, has been, and probably will always be a symbol of prestige, kingdom, king, royalty. That's the idea of purple. So she sold purple cloth. It is known to sell purple cloth. So this idea of, of Lydia, another woman at center stage, right? Mm -hmm. 
um, is also extravagant. And and what happened with Lydia? What was she? I don't. Was she in Rome? She was on Paul's journeys. Um, right. She hosted a church in her home, didn't she? Yes. So she's the she's the first Gentile convert mm-hmm. in in the what's would be known as like Europe. Yeah, she was a Phoenician that that specialized in indigo. Right. And so so she's an outsider being brought in. She's now like this extravagant person, um, you know, that lavished in extravagance. And maybe there's something to that, a, a, a connection with now, what did she do with that cloth from that point forward? You know, who did she sell that cloth to? Who did she give that cloth to? I just wonder, like, like it wasn't just a benefit to Paul. It was a benefit to the early church. What kind of people were the recipients of her cloth? I mean, I, I doubt that anyone would want to wear it because it's an immediate target. <laughs> well, maybe. It's like wearing fur that you're going to be doused True. in red paint, basically. True. Okay, well, let's let's go to the second part. Um, I can read this again and do the, uh, where are we going to the, the last supper. Okay. Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 went to the chief priest to give Jesus up when they heard it, they were delighted and promised to give him money. So he started looking for an opportunity to turn him in on the first day of the festival on lead lemon bread. When the Passover lamb was sacrificed, the disciples said to Jesus, where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover meal? He sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city. A man carrying a water jar will meet you. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs already furnished Prepare for us there. The disciples left, came into the city, and found everything just as they had told them, and they prepared the Passover meal. That evening, Jesus arrived at the twelve. During the meal, Jesus said, I assure you that one of you will betray me, someone eating with me. Deeply saddened, they asked him, one by one, It's not me, is it? Jesus answered, It's one of the twelve. One who is dipping bread with me into this bowl. The human one goes to his death, just as is written about him. But how terrible it is for the person who betrays the human one. It would have been better for him to have not even been born. When they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take this, is my body. He took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, and they drank from it. He said, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. I assure you that I won't drink wine again until the day when I drink it anew in a way in God's kingdom. After singing songs of praise, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Okay. So what do we do with this that's new? <laughs> My question is, that I've always asked that question is what was Judas giving up? Judas mm-hmm. wasn't in hiding. Everyone knew where he right. was. So the, the, the chief priests, they could have found him at any time. And so yeah. mm-hmm. Judas was again, a story for the early church. Like this was not, this is not just to tell the story of, of Jesus betrayal because Jesus didn't need to be betrayed. Right. And so mm-hmm. what, what was the message for the early church? That we're Judas? Yes and no. The, I, I think it has more to do with, at the time of writing, you could actually sell out your friends, sell out right. the, actually the underground church that was, that was there. Right. And so 
Jesus, Jesus wasn't underground, right? Very public, mm-hmm. very, very, very public. And so at any moment they could, they could do that. And so it, and so it perhaps, reminds, perhaps it was, he was selling out when he would be most alone, but I really think it has more to do with, with early Christians selling out their friends to try to remain safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's more of a relationship thing. Um, years and years and years ago, <clears throat> I was in Vietnam and I was visiting a missionary there. He was a pastor of the underground church in Vietnam. And at the time, the church was very much underground. They met in like a warehouse. They moved around a lot. They And so it was quite interesting and different for me to connect with a pastor that moved me around. So my wife and I show up and he says, call me from this payphone." So I walked up to this payphone that was there and I, I called when we had, when they had payphones. I called him from this payphone, and he said, okay, meet me at this. Then it was on one corner. And then he said, meet me at this restaurant down the road. So I met him at a restaurant down the road and we sat down and we just ordered some tea or something he just said let's have some tea so he visited with us for a bit and he said well my wife is waiting for us at this other restaurant and so we walked to this other restaurant and it was all a diversion to keep the government from uh following him and and quote finding out where he was but then when you think about it they're like okay so they they've tapped his phone they tap his uh, his uh, offices, they tap everything that he's about. They're literally following him around. So they already know where he is. And they already uh, probably know where the, the church is meeting. So why would I, why would they be needing me to sell him out? And I think that that's more Judas wanting to be in relationship with leadership or Judas wanting to be in a relationship with those in power to keep him safe versus them trying to figure out where Jesus was. Mm. And so it's all, it's all a, in, in Judas's case, uh, trying to side with power versus betrayal. Yep. That makes sense. Well, let's do a quick study on, uh, on, this meal um so while they were eating he took some bread blessed it this is my body this is where christians in the early church were thought to be cannibals right um and this is and then he takes this cup this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many truly i say to you i will never drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when i drink it knew in the kingdom of God. So there's four cups, as I remember. In the um, Jewish Passover Seder. In, yep. in the yes. Jewish Passover. Um, there's four cups of wine. And correct me if I'm wrong, you have the... The first cup is... Um, first cup is sanctification, right? The Kiddush. Mm-hmm. Uh, proclamation, blessing, and last cup. Praise. There. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> and Saint- some are some sanctification, deliverance, redemption, and praise. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is that the Jewish lineup? I mean, I think they can be all interpreted different ways. Uh, sure. There's lots. There's lots of different. Yeah, but it's usually sanctification, so we're God's holy people set apart. Right. And you have deliverance with an outstretched hand and mighty arm. Right. And right. You take mm-hmm. you take your pinky and you dip in the wine and you put yep. your plate as, mm-hmm. as God blots out right. sin and also blots out enemies. Then right. you have the cup of redemption, which this is the cup that Jesus sits mm-hmm. down with and breaks bread. And surely I will not get to the cup of praise until I'm in the new kingdom. So Ooh. the cup of the blessing, that's because he says what he says at the end. Most 
commentators would say that he's drinking of the cup of blessing and refusing the cup of praise. Correct. Cup of, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. I mean, it could be redemption and, and refusing praise. Okay. Or blessing, refusing praise. And, but okay, so, you got to look at go bless, blessing in the Jewish tradition is not, is not your own blessing. Blessing is that you bless God. Right. You're not blessed. You bless God. Right. Well, there's a transformative before we say goodbye to Sharia today, because Sharia is leaving us here in a couple of minutes. And then Jake and I are going to continue <laughs> for a few more minutes. Uh, we're going to kill chapter 14. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we're not going to we're not going to do much with chapter 14. Um, there's a transformative experience here that that is taking shape where Jesus is taking uh, his life and turning it into a metaphor where mm -hmm. he's taking his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection and turning it into the metaphor of the Passover. And that is transformative. And what's really interesting is we make a huge jump. And, and the woman with the nard is our huge jump. So we've jumped from don't tell people who I am. I'm not going to reveal who I am. Mm -hmm. I'm a big secret. Don't tell your friends. Keep quiet about my miracles. You know, don't tell anybody what you saw today to... She knows what she's seeing and doing. Very lavish and, outpouring. And, and now we're going to jump to, now I'm going right. to show you what the real deal is. And that he does it with this, with this, uh, with this metaphor of the Passover. So Shreya, thanks for joining us today. And uh, thanks for joining us today. And we're going to just continue on with, with Jake. And so let's. Here we are. Talk, hi, let's talk more about this. All right, let's go back to the text in verse 25, where it says, truly, I say to you, I will never drink again. So, so he drinks this cup of blessing or, or one of the cups, redemption, like Jake was saying. So this, uh, this cup that he doesn't drink though is the cup of praise probably so he's he's not singing uh, or he's not he's not drinking this cup but it definitely seems like that the, the that the others do um because in verse 26 after singing a hymn they went out to the mount of olives so this this hymn that they would have sung is in Psalm 113 through 118, and that's after the cup of praise. So it's obvious that at least a portion of the group uh, definitely sang the hymn after the, the last cup. So they finished the Passover, even though Jesus might have not um, finish the Passover. Doesn't mean that he didn't finish the Passover though. That's probably reading too much into the text because all he says is I'm not going to drink of the fruit of the vine again. He's taking his life and moving it and driving it with this metaphor. And so that metaphor becomes the centerpiece of the narrative versus the details of the actual process of the Passover. So I think Christians get too hung up in, well, what did Jesus actually do during the Passover versus yeah. just looking at the bigger picture of the metaphor of the Passover. And then when you look at this next section right here, and they'll say that, well, Jesus never, and we even said a bit of it too, I think, because it's ingrained in us. Um, well, Jesus didn't go into the cup of praise. Um the whole they sang songs of praise and they went out. That is that is the fourth cup, um, right? Right. The, I think did we are talking about the last psalm. Yeah. yeah, right. Psalm one fifteen to one eighteen. So these, I, Jesus did the entire Passover, and so there's there's this theology out there that that I mean we were even taught that that the Passover wasn't finished. Right. 
when really right. it's it's finished right and honestly it doesn't it it's that's a detail that really i don't know it doesn't seem like that that matters too much totally yeah it's it's not a it's not a uh, a thing um what one thing i do want to point out though is our version of the last supper and and our version of the last supper is da vinci's last supper and i think that that's a really poor view of the last supper oh, like like actually the physical depiction physical depiction not, so not we the, not the eucharist or the communion no no no, but, no. yeah yeah okay. so the physical depiction of da vinci is very eurocentric so number one all the characters are seemingly you know european looking um and then number two they're in a very european styled eating so they're all sitting up at a table in a line so you've seen that picture that the last supper is and it's famous and it's you know it's beautiful like 24 huh seating for 24. exactly like i i i find it beautiful myself i've seen it it's it is beautiful uh so you have this you have this like depiction this eurocentric depiction if you go south of the equator, uh, you begin to see different views or different uh, ideas of the Last Supper, different depictions. And most depictions of the Last Supper are not in a line unless they are just taken from the European type view. So if you go into some Spanish speaking cultures or uh, you know, Central South America, Africa, um, in the countries of Africa, you will see different depictions of the Last Supper. And usually what you see is some form of seating arrangement, not in a line, but in the round. So if you go to the Franciscan um, Monastery in uh, Lima, Peru, which I've been, and there's a painting there. Uh, uh, I can't remember the painter's name at this uh, moment. Uh, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a painting there of, I had to look it up really quick, but there's a painting That's there funny. of Jesus sitting with the disciples in the round. Correct. But it's more, it, it, there's more to it. Um, if you just look up Lima, Peru, and the Last Supper, just Google it and you'll find it. And in the Fran uh, St. Francis uh, Monastery there in Lima, right, right in the heart of town, um, which they have great ham sandwiches in the restaurant right next door. But <laughs> uh, how many queso? Ham and cheese. So, so you you see this picture is much different than our normal Eurocentric picture. This picture is there's women and children all around as well. It's not just the Last Supper, 12 disciples and Jesus. It is all of these people in the round. And then in the windows, what's really interesting about this picture is in the windows, there are people looking in to through the windows on the last supper so this picture of jesus and the last supper women the, the disciples are there in the round women children all there children yeah. are it seemingly yeah and i don't know if we're allowed to show that but well, it's on my it phone now so that'd be okay yeah. okay all right <laughs> <laughs> so women and children in the round, but seemingly the, the children are, are serving and playing. So you see this idea of, of it's, it's not this somber death time. It's a celebration like it, it was, um, it was about praise. It was about redemption and proclamation. And mm. so it's, it's it's words and praise and deeds and serving each other this wonderful meal 
um, of the Last Supper. So below the equator, it seems. Now, I'm, I might be mistaken because there might be other cultures that depict Jesus' Last Supper in the round. But for just simplicity, what I see below the equator in a lot of countries that I've been to is it's, it's depicted and pictured differently. Mm -hmm. And the, how it's pictured differently is, is more accurate, I think, than a Eurocentric view. So family would have been there. Women and children would have been there. The disciples would have been there. They would have been all together. Um, well, I mean, if you look the, at, right. if you look at even the text, and I'll go back there. Um, where are we at? There were other people, lots of other people in the room. Right. And so he sent two of his disciples go into a city. Right. And so then they prepare a meal. Disciples prepare a meal. Then this, then the 12 arrive. Right. And so right then, and then they ask, well, who, who is it? Well, it's actually, he's going to narrow it down now that it's actually going to be one of the 12 is going to betray me. And right. so just looking at the text, there's, there's a, there's a lot more than, than just 12, 13 people there. Right. And it makes sense that there would be, uh, because who's, who's making the food and who's delivering the food to the tables. And I mean, just simple, like questions like that answer that, that unknown. Um, yeah. So I, I looked up the name Diego de la Puente. Okay is the painter Diego de la Puente um, in the 1600s. He painted this painting and it's a beautiful painting. It's actually like quite unknown that it's there. It's not like this major attraction. So you walk into this the St. Francis um, mm -hmm. Franciscan type monastery and at the end of this room, basically this long room, there's this painting sitting at the end it's roped off you can't touch it but definitely it is a prized uh, possession of the peruvian christians in lima now what is another interesting fact is the lamb of god or the lamb shank that is at the jewish table that is a sacred animal for them and what's interesting is over time in different cultures the lamb is not necessarily sacred to other cultures. So other cultures put a different animal in the center of that table. So I know that in New Guinea, I think it is, where they mm -hmm. put a chicken at the center of the table. So it's a chicken of God. It's not the lamb of God. It's the chicken of God. But in Lima, Peru, or in Peruvian culture, the guinea pig. So if you've ever had guinea pig, tastes like chicken. It, it just it tastes like a gamey type meat, which is quite good. Um, guinea pig is a prized delicacy in Peru. So at the center of the table, the center of this Diego de la uh, uh, Puente is a guinea pig. There's a guinea pig at the center of this table and they call it the guinea pig of God. And so instead of the lamb of God, you have the guinea pig of God. But this whole interpretation, Jesus in the round, there is a metaphor there as well that's often missed that I think that the church could live in more of the round, could live in more of the La Familia, the family type atmosphere where the brothers and the sisters, yes, not my blood, not by blood, but because of the blood of Christ, because of this cup of blessing, because of the new covenant, we're brought together around this Eucharisteo. Uh, we're brought around the Eucharisteo of praise where Jesus lived, yes, died, yes, betrayed, yes, buried, yes, mm -hmm. but we live in this hope of the resurrection of ourselves as well. Yeah. That's great. Any other thoughts on that? In that same painting, um, yeah. the artist depicted Judas as the Spanish conquistador 
that ruled Peru at the time. Mm. Uh, sorry, just um, Spanish ruler, I guess. Uh, yeah. But you look at you look at what is the meaning behind Judas, and I yeah. can't think of a better one than that of of mm-hmm. improper use of power. Right, right. I I want to put if we could, well, just a website. I'm not sure. Um, if this if we could put, um. There's also one in Cusco. Yeah, that's too. Gastro Obscura. Yeah. Um, but the there's one. Quite a, there's quite a few around that have the same motif. Of... Right. The one in, in Lima, Peru, though, is the most, I think, famous and the most detailed. Um, yeah. If we could just put that in our in our show notes, um, we'll just I'll just drop it in the messages, Jake, and then and then. Maybe you can put it in there. Hopefully that's a that's a good website. We'll check that out before we post it. All right. Well, with that, um, I hope everyone enjoyed that material. And uh, we are excited to finish the book of Mark. We're moving into cults. And so hopefully uh, here by uh, latter or mid-August, we'll be in our series on the the cults and the occult so we're going to describe and and uh, describe what each of those are and we're going to take a handful of cults and go over them what they believed and why they did and have done what they do and have done in our history and so if you have any questions for us or if you have any thoughts or comments please just post those on the comment section of the social media channel you're listening to. If you want to give to us, remember, go to uh, resonatelife.org and you can give to us on our give page or patreon.com where you can go to the constructionists and you can give there as well. All right. With that, good night, everybody. Thanks for joining us.